Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Ruby Frankie was known by millions as a very tough mom. That's exactly the way she wanted it. The social media star amassed a huge following of supporters and detractors alike preaching the values of strict discipline. But you'll learn in a new podcast available exclusively on Wondery Plus how the small empire built by this momfluencer crumbled the moment her 12-year-old son escaped their home and called 911. Wondery and Law and & Crime bring you the new podcast, The Rise and Fall of Ruby Frankie, which explores the allegations of starvation, torture, and emotional abuse leveled against Frankie and her business partner, Jody Hildebrandt. Learn about the family's path to stardom, the depravity investigators uncovered inside the home, and hear in-depth analysis of the ongoing criminal trial. Listen to the rise and fall of Ruby Frankie exclusively and ad-free on Wondery Plus. Join Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the Two Knowledge Podcast. I'm your host, James Arnold, joined by my good friend, Timmy Long. Hi, everyone. Rowan is on the, the sound and the cameras and all that, Jazz. Hi, Rowan. Hi, Rowan. And our guest today is a Mayfield lady called Maureen Considine. Yep. You're very yes. welcome to the Two Knowledge Podcast. Thanks for having me. You're very welcome. Once before we get into it, we've got two guests in the studio as well. Say hi, say Alan Simon. Hello. <laughs> You're very welcome. You're very welcome. Uh, um, Sarah brought us up uh, some baked goods last week and uh, she was meant to bring them to the studio but Timmy had COVID so she actually brought them up to the, the door yeah fair so, uh, thank you even though Timmy has no taste he still had them so. yeah. <laughs> do you know what they're, they actually got me thinking though, you know when I go on for a sweet treat a bar of chocolate a Mars bar of Snickers or whatever instead of having them buy a stack of them the protein balls and I them know. other things and having them in the house I know. and you're having a, a treat but it's also full of protein and, and vitamins and whatever else so that's what I'll be doing and in the future know. so I'll get your phone number after and I'll buy a, a monthly supply yeah. <laughs> she's called the balanced baker on Instagram yeah. but you know what I found about the treats and this is pure off the cuff now like, but it's a nice pitch for you anyway but do you know the box of treats and I've an awful sweet too especially after my dinner or yeah. after the gym or something like that but if you had one in the protein balls or one of the homemade mm-hmm. Snicker bars or whatever, that do you. Yeah. Whereas, you no, know, if you want a packet of biscuits or a packet of Rocky, oh, well, you'd eat the packet, but with these, you wouldn't. Jesus Christ, yeah. So, Be gone. <laughs> you can have that one, right? So, thanks for thanks for the treats and thanks for coming. So, Maureen, what's the crack with you, girl? For the people that don't know you, do you want to tell us a little bit about who you are and where you're from? Okay. Um, I'm from Mayfield. Um, I grew, I grew up in Channel Lawn until I was about 11 and then we were, we, we were one of the few families selected for uh, the first regeneration scheme in the country, Ardvalia. What year and is this now? Around 1991 to 1993. I think that, you know, it was a building program, but like they made you do um, pre-tenancy kind of guard vetting and mm. stuff like that and uh, courses and um, different things. But yeah, we were in the first Regeneration so came in the country before was it was even a buzzword. Shannon Lawn was regenerated and you moved no. to Ardvalia? No. Um, so Mount Ern was being re- regenerated into Ardvalia. They oh, gave it a I new see. name and everything. So they would have been the flats, you know, like the flats in the Glen that they knocked down in the last mm. few years. Same thing. But they they refurbished them in brick and they filled in all the gaps with houses. So mm. ours was one of the houses in building in the gaps. Yeah. And um, I was 12 or 13. But I ended up writing my um, degree thesis on social housing and my MA thesis on regeneration and social housing. Can I ask you about housing and that in Mayfield? Yeah. So we're obviously from Nakhnehini and Holly Hill. We're, we're undergoing a big regeneration at the mm. moment and the place looks completely different to what it used to 10, 12 years ago, especially during the 90s. Um, when I walk through parts of Mayfield, there's, there's parts of Mayfield kind of affluent, you could say, mm-hmm. Um definitely middle class there's mm-hmm. parts of it has mixed housing between social and private but there's other parts of Mayfield that look like Nakhnehini in the 90s they look like they've just been left there and mm-hmm. I won't name them because I don't want to be stigmatising any areas yeah. but you might know what I'm talking mm-hmm. about yeah. but there's there's savage poverty and neglect in that in, in parts of Mayfield so how come and you might have come this across this how come parts of it was regenerated and other parts was just left 
So um, they they were the, the only social housing flats in Mayfield and they were targeted because they were flats. And um, I think, you know, buzzwords like antisocial behaviour and stuff like that. I remember living in Shannon Lawn, looking up the hill to Mount Aaron, and my mother was after telling us that we'd be moving there. And it was like the place with all the fires. Really freaked out. Like, why are we moving to the place that every time I look up the hill, there's a fire? Like, mm. And um, it was just run down. You know, that happens sometimes um, in housing where people keep moving out. So mm. if someone was living in a flat in Mayfield, they might have room for one or two children. Eventually they'd get a house when they had more children. So the population kept changing. So when they regenerated it, they tried to include a mix of housing and um, flats. So the flats are two bed, but the, the houses are one, two, three and four bed. Um, so they were trying to accommodate all different types of families and yeah. kind of keep a sense of community yeah. in the area. Um, why that's that's the only reason they picked so, it is because it's the, the only area with flats. The whole area wasn't regenerated. So like like yeah. in Nakahini, it's all regenerated houses, everything, mm. bungalows, everything has been flattened and there's no houses being built. But in Mayfield, which is just targeted the flat complexes. Yeah. So then those estates that had houses weren't regenerated. No, they they were bricked up. I don't know if you had the bricking up scheme, but so everything was prefabbed and then they went along and they kind of went over everything in bricks to improve mm. the insulation and all that sort of mm. stuff. But I remember waiting for the bricking up and our bricking up happened about two years before we moved anyway. But mm. um, yeah, but that know, was all they did. Mm. They bricked up. But you know, because the stigma, Nakhdini has, because mm. Nakhdini has a reputation, okay? But I think maybe that works to its advantage in terms of the investment into the area. Mm. But there's parts of Mayfield that could really do with the investment, but it doesn't have the name like in Akinahini, but it has all the same problems, if if not worse. And it's just something that I found, you know, <laughs> curious about, like, you know, did Nakhnahini get all this investment because it has a stigma and maybe Mayfield doesn't have that name, but it still has all this neglect and poverty and social issues, you know? Well, I remember when they did the Nakhnahini master plan, which they made this decision to regenerate Nakhnahini. I was writing one of those theses and they kind of decided that They'd done the work in Mayfield and it was to move on to the next place. Mm. And and in some ways they had. But if you don't stay on top of it, if you don't keep providing things that a community needs, you know, um, like Ballymun's a great example. They shipped a lot of people out there in the 70s when there were no shops. Mm. So you couldn't get your messages. So then Tell everyone that. had to get into town yeah. to get their messages. And there wasn't a bus service. So it created... A lot of problems that could have been solved by a shopping centre, mm. you know. But he, and Mayfield had the same problem. No shopping centre. Even in Nakhnahini for the regeneration, and we'll move on from the regeneration yeah, yeah. after this, but even in Nakhnahini for the regeneration, there's been people in Nakhnahini for years, since the late 70s. And then they were, their houses were being demolished and they were moved to areas like the meadows between Nakhnahini and Farnley up by the yeah. water tower. So it's a huge area with no nothing in there, no bus service, no shops. Or else down in Shanakil, no bus service, no shops. What about the old ladies that have no cows? How like how do they go to the shop? Like how do they go to the post office? How do they pay the isolation that no and it's just like we're regenerating it and you you're going down, you know, and that's the end of it. Do you know what I mean? It's like there's not much thought going on to the planning really of it. Are the people that <coughs> it's the people that are gonna be living there should be the ones really asked yeah. what they need. You know, you were right there, there's no bus service going down into Shanakil, none whatsoever. Like, and, we're uh, from Nakhnahini all our lives, right? Yeah. If we were in the meadows, you'd want Google Maps to get your way around it. <laughs> if we went into the meadows in the car and threw me out down the end of it, I wouldn't be able to get out. I'd have yeah. to go through the field. I'd yeah. be quicker to go through the field. It's just so vast. There's so many houses down there. There's no, there's nothing down there. So there's two things happening. Is the designer's ego is one. So the architects, um, they'll be cursing me, but they've been criticised about yeah. this for, for decades, if not centuries, their ego can get in the way. So they have a master plan. Mm. It doesn't matter that you have to live under their master plan. They have a master plan and they have a vision and they're encouraged in their training to really stand up for their vision, whatever their vision may be. Yeah. And then the other side of it is the social side of it. So gentrification is a word we use when they decide they're going to clean up an area by making it more middle class. So they did it. They very much did it in Ballymun. Ballymun went from 100% um, 
working and underclass population to 60% middle class and 60% private housing during that regeneration. And that was by design. Mm -hmm. So by renovating your house and suggesting we found another house for you and, you know, different things Mm -hmm. like that. There's a there's an element of um, social planning or social control, depending on your opinion about Mm -hmm. who they're selecting and where they're putting them. So, like I said, we had to go through tenancy pre-selection and I found the criteria for it one day and they they describe what types of families they wanted and what types of heads heads of household they wanted. And I think my mother was an exception um, because they did want male heads of household. They wanted two two parent fed families. Um, I think my mother was an exception, but she was on the board at a local youth training workshop and a few other Mm -hmm. things, you know. but we were pre-selected and the next phase was pre-selected and the final phase was pre-selected. But then after that, um, once people moved out, there was no selection. There was no betting anymore. And I'm not sure I agree with that anyway, but they created a community and then they just kind of left. And we were supposed to have um, estate management as part of it, which would empower local people to it's just basic stuff have a small budget for cutting the grass painting Mm. the railings you know uh, cleaning the windows and other features in very high buildings where people couldn't get up to them and stuff changing the light bulbs in the corridors of the flats because we couldn't reach them i remember city council guy told me it was one of the worst things about dealing with social housing tenants they expect you to change a light bulb and and then me explaining to him we don't own commercial ladders Mm. You know, to get up a three-story building to change light, but we don't own them. Mm. Nobody owns them. So we were supposed to have a budget, and at the eleventh hour, the the city council redrafted that budget to um, to to say you can have it, but we've total control over it. So the whole thing collapsed. Mm. People were so offended after all the work they'd done. The whole yeah. thing collapsed. So yeah. yeah, there's things to watch out for, but you there are a lot of people in, in criticism. You know your stuff. Yeah, sorry, yeah, I bore you to doubt with it. Um, no, it's not boring. No, no, it's not boring. No, it's just, it's, you should be inside in the city hall. I'd say behind fucking I'm Lord Mayor. I'm uh, not sure they'd have next me. Next to the Lord Mayor um, anyway, tell them. But there, there are things communities yeah. need to watch out for. And um, definitely gentrification. If they're yeah. trying to change the makeup of your community, that's one. And mm-hmm. the other one would, would be um, if if... Do you trust us to look after our own community or not? Because it's mm. a problem when they don't. Mm. You know, it really yeah. is. Because um, the best people leave, don't they? Yeah. You know, they, they get sick of it. They get sick of the antisocial problems and they'll go mm. live somewhere else. Mm. Whereas in the path of social mobility, like you you, you grow up in a, a, a tough area and you go through education, get a job, and part of it is kind of moving into a nicer house, into a nicer area that doesn't have the social problems you grew up with. That's yeah. neither good nor bad. It's just it is. The way it is. It is no, me. and I, I mean, I don't live in Mayfield anymore either. Um, but I, I did notice a lot of people who were really trying. They were like community activists, and then they were gone. And yeah. I kind of asked my mother, "Where so and so gone?" And I was so, well, they got fed up, you know. Um, like I knew people as well who were targeted. The wrong house was targeted with a petrol bomb, so they left in fear. You mm. know, they. Oh, you blame somebody. Yeah. Do you know where I'm living at the moment? My house has been. The windows have been blown in twice in the last couple of years. The wheelie bin has been blown two or three times. Do you know what I think? I, said, mm. I, I did that a lot of times when I was younger. You, but yeah, you were so sick of the wheelie bin, Robin. back on me now, you know what yeah, I mean? Yeah. But like, I'm a proud Nari, but believe yeah. me, when I get the money, I'm gone. Yeah, <laughs> I'm yeah. already talking. <laughs> but I'm going, I'm, going, I'm going to stay in the north side, but I'm just going a bit outside it. Yeah. Into the country, but five minutes from home type of thing, you know? I'm in Raccoonie, so. Yeah yeah, 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 yeah. And I love it. And when I look out my window, I don't see other brick walls, yeah, you know? Yeah. And that means a lot. Um, I think the closeness of our houses really got to me. I think it made me claustrophobic. Um, and now I'm just like, I feel I can breathe. I open the back door. So do you know when you were going through college, were you working? Yeah. Bar work and restaurant and shop work, all Mm. that kind of stuff. And when did you complete your master's? Um, 2008, 2009. And did you get work out of it or was it just a labour of love? Um, no, it was more of a labour of love. I didn't know how to get work out of it. Mm. I didn't know how to be yeah. an art historian. I'm still yeah. trying to figure it out. I didn't know how to be a working class art historian anyway. Um, so you did your bachelor's, master's and the, gen- and the social housing? So my, my 
bachelor degree was fine art, but you have to do an academic thesis as well. And our colleges are so liberal that I said, I, I'd like to write about social housing design. And they were like, yeah, go on, go for it. Interesting. Well, That's interesting. That you just let me do it. Yeah, it's know? interesting. Yeah. Social housing design is, it sounds like yeah. architect's office, something like that. Do you know I yeah. Some well, you could bring yeah. in your, you could bring in your own theories. So you could bring in like class theories up from Karl Marx and yeah. feminist theories. And so I, I, my, some of mine was a massive rant mm. about how it was middle class men designing mm. for predominantly working class women and their children mm. and like about eight pages of me giving out about that like, yes. um, so so you're doing a phd now yeah and is is that around the same team or is it completely it's a little bit connected because um it's it's on the institutions the residential institutions and memory from them but mm. also what do we do with that memory residential um, institutions like the, the laundries and stuff like the laundries that. the industrial schools mother and baby homes and to a lesser extent the what what were called then the mental hospitals or the mental mm. asylums. that must have been really tough like going into the history of all those places like in and reading some of the stories yeah, that were really horrific and where, sad where we're from in holly hill and um, mm. just below holly hill is shanakeel and then the hospitals you know, mm. we would have yeah. you know, spent a lot of time down there yeah. taking drugs and going through us to get to the shaky bridge and, and robbing the copper robbing the copper and, <laughs> and that stuff but um, had to buy the drugs <laughs> we used to be down there as well buzzing over our heads and knees in the middle of the night afraid of our lives to walk down the corridor to go for the piss should be but long story short anyway <laughs> yeah. when you're in the building you can feel the energy energy in there yeah. and you know bad yeah. things happened in here. My yeah. parents worked there yeah. but, and, and they know, told me about some of the bad, yeah. bad things happened there, definitely. Yeah. 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 What yeah. building did they work in? The grand, um, what was it the Grey Building and the and The, the Grey Building, Dance? yeah. Mm. Yeah. And yeah. I, like my mother, because it was the 70s, yeah. she, when she got married, she had to give up her job because they couldn't both be civil servants. Yeah. So I know, I'm mad, no? uh, yeah. I, I've and, been to the basement of that building, yeah. right? And How are you doing down there, Tim? And probably just on, do you, do you know, when you're, <laughs> when you're on your walk, he's there, do you know? I know, I know. I know. <laughs> you know what the fuck you're up to. <laughs> but anyhow, um, I see the padded cells, padded rooms in the basement, like, and, um, you know, just walking around the place, like, and I wouldn't have known much about anything at that stage, but it really, really, really was a scary place. Mm. But it wasn't until years down the line I seen a few different documentaries about places like that. And mm. I was saying, holy fuck. Because there were some people that went in there were saying. Yeah, my mother said they, that. They were actually saying yeah. there was nothing wrong with them, but there were family members. Say, for instance, this is an example. There was this one um, farming couple, both of them died. They had a son and daughter. Both of them left, right? Um, the farm was the, the the son was 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 looking after the farm and the mm. daughter and the house or whatever but she got involved with a guy mm. and he was a guard and they managed to get the brother who's the farmer out of the into a mental institution mm. telling the Lord like he was a guard you can imagine the power they had back then yeah. and they got him in yeah you know and there was absolutely nothing wrong with this man but he ended up going mad in the end he lost his mind it was a documentary on TV car about it but I, I, like I said, there's a lot of stories like that. Yeah. Do, you, yeah. do you know if you're in there as well? Um, like we, you can climb up the top in the red building and shake the bell. Yeah. Do you know? Yeah. But when you're walking through the corridors and you're looking in the, they look like cells, like some of the room, and then some of them have concrete slabs on them. And would you just think of the stories? And a lot of people in addiction would have been sent in there yeah. because the, the, um, like how the government reacted to drug use and, and addiction mm -hmm. back in the day was a, was a health-led approach, but it was housed them in asylums. That was the response. Mm -hmm. so you could have somebody that might be perfectly normal and maybe the, the alcohol or the drug use was probably a very understandable reaction to the experiences mm -hmm. they've had as a child. But they could be housed in an asylum as somebody with a mental illness mm -hmm. for, for, for the rest of their days. And eventually they probably would end up yeah. losing it or being so heavily medicated that they just develop psychological issues you know, as a result. But it's just sad, isn't it? Yeah. 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 Well, my mother said exactly that, that the people went insane and became and became traumatized. And then that's what they were dealing with, their trauma. And then their their trauma became more serious trauma and eventually PTSD and they're living in it and experiencing it so she said that was one host of people she said there were other people who were really criminally insane but again the same people had to be around them 
Mm. And that was damaging to them, you know. And she said that there was an awful lot of people put in by their families for being gay. Um, something like the farm situation yeah. that would happen. Sometimes, um, and this one I have to laugh at as a woman, sometimes you have to deflect by laughing, but mm. being too intelligent mm. as a woman or being a difficult woman, yeah. um, they definitely yeah. would have locked me up. Did it burn you as a witch long ago? Oh, walk. stop it. <laughs> Burnt at the stake. Yeah. Uh, I wouldn't have lasted it in Magdalene Andre at all. They would have put me into the mental asylum for not not doing what I was told. Mm. So, yeah. Drawn parts of rural Africa. Yeah. They still born witches. Yeah. So, all, mm. yeah, all tend to, tend to be old ladies that are still alive in the tribe. And a rumor can go around before you know it, they're born to live, like. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, like, we might think that we're a million miles, a million years away from all that, but we're actually not. Like, we can look at Africa and think, look, they're savages. We did the same thing ourselves maybe a hundred years before or a couple of hundred years in the yeah. medieval times, at least. Yeah. And um, there's something you said there as well around housing um, or containing, you know, seriously or criminally criminals. Mm -hmm. In with innocent people, mm -hmm. do you know we did the tour of Spike Island. Mm -hmm. Did you ever do the tour of Spike Island? Did you ever do the tour of Spike Island? No. You should do it anyway. It's very good. Mm -hmm. But they talk about like Spike Island was like a holding prison before in Cromwell would ship them to Australia, the Caribbean, the United yeah. States. But it could be children down there for robbing oranges, and it could be paedophiles and rapists, and they're all thrown into yeah. the same ship. Yeah. You have to wonder like what's happening to the women and the children on the ships at the hands of. Well, that's another thing, and I suppose quick trigger warning to anyone um, out there for rape. Um, we know of women who were made pregnant in the mental asylum, who were transferred to Besbra and then sent back to the mental asylum. And we know of cases where, um, we, we know of a case of a mixed race child, and I wouldn't normally say mixed race, but <clears throat> it's just by way of explanation. Yeah. Um, and the only person in the asylum who was a person of color was a Dominican priest. Mm. So the Dominican priest raped this woman and they sent her off to Besbra. She gave birth. Her son was sent to an industrial school. She was sent back to the mental asylum. And in the industrial school, his older brother met him. The nun called him over and said, this is your brother. And he didn't he didn't understand. Like, <laughs> he yeah. didn't understand yeah. anything about who his family were. And uh, then they took that boy um, to scrub the dirt off him because of the colour of his skin. That's unreal, isn't yeah. it? Yeah. All those traumas are connected across all those institutions. Totally. Speaking of Besbra, so it was Catherine Coffey O'Brien who actually put me in touch with yourself. She's yeah. your both friends. Yeah. Catherine Coffey O'Brien obviously was on our podcast and she's powerhouse of a woman come through um, the mother and baby homes herself as a mother. Mm -hmm. um, and has a family history related to all that and uh, she says that without you she wouldn't have been able to do what she's doing in terms of advocacy and all that stuff so um, say hi to Catherine uh, how did and, you get, and likewise yeah yeah, yeah Catherine's obviously. great obviously yeah, yeah. Um, how did you end up getting involved in activism around the mother and baby homes um, it was through feminism and so I started exploring my feminism and what it meant. And what does that look like? Like how does one? Well, that's the thing. There's there's many feminism, so people have the worst stereotype often in their head about. My dad what, used to what, say, what it "My mum is a feminist, right?" Is yeah. my dad used to call? You no, know, she's going out to her groups. The the anti man club. He yeah. Worries, you know? yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Um, well, my husband takes piss as well, but I think I've turned him into a feminist because sometimes he comes home from work with a story and I'll be just like holding in the laughter because I know I made him that way. <laughs> um, but um, there are just many different types of feminism. Yeah. And I was a bit frustrated with some of the feminism I was encountering because it didn't um, affect poor or marginalised women's lives at all. And it seemed to all be about getting into the boardroom or you know Sheryl mm. Sandberg yeah. feminism like was, did this all come along because of your own your own experiences yeah. being treated negatively by by men and organizations with, with I don't think it was particularly men see yeah. that's that's another thing like for me feminism is about understanding that we have a society that it treats women less well than yeah. men on on a generalized basis mm. and um women do too you know, 
sorry, everyone, but women do it too. Like the nuns did it to all of the women in the mother and baby homes and Magdalene laundries and industrial schools. So it's more about a system of society that's set up to, to put male needs before female needs. So even the law, for example, like well, you, you'll know of cases of domestic violence where women have gone to court to try and get a barring order and they'll get the barring order, but he still gets to see the kids and maybe he should still get to see the kids. But it's very traumatising for the kids who've witnessed the assault and then the social workers get involved and the social workers often blame the victim for being a victim. You're exposing your children to violence. Mm. I think even relationships like that when it's a man and woman and they're tit for tat I think the kids are also being used as a little weapon as well in between and the they, can the be, other. they can be leveraged in both directions yeah, too yeah yeah, yeah yeah especially if the parents aren't mature enough not to do that yeah. but even in addiction yeah. and crime which is what we tend to talk about here for most of the time yeah. anyway um, if a couple has a child and both are in addiction if the man leaves the home, it's kind of nearly, oh, he's in addiction. It's kind of, mm. you know, it's okay. Or it's mm. not as bad. The woman leaves the home. If the, the woman leaves the child or the child is in the they want this stigma that's directed at that yeah. woman. Mm. Yeah. If the man goes to prison, the woman will, in general terms now, like, mm-hmm. the woman will go up with the kids swinging off or passing in the runners, the money for the tobacco and everything. When the woman goes to prison, she's on her own. Yeah. And she's expected to be engaging with social workers and, and have all that responsibility when she comes out. So there's loads of, like we talk about intersectionality here before as well, like things that are bad for men, if the same circumstances exist for a woman, they're worse for a woman. Yeah. Because yeah. woman, it's like, know your privilege, like when you're, if you're a white, you know, mm-hmm. if you're a white male in Western Europe, you're privileged, you're more privileged than a white female. Yeah. And if you're a white female traveller, it's supposed again. Absolutely. And so on. Yeah. yeah. And, and, and you know, you pile on things like being a traveller or... Um, Gay. Yeah, anything like that. And it, it does get worse. Um, but also then I've noticed a class thing. So a working class guy can be treated as definitely significantly more badly than, say, a middle class woman. It, but it'll depend on the situation and how slippery the situation is. Mm. But... Um, it's just recognizing a system. So it's not men uh, or any man in particular who who hurt me or anything like that is really recognizing a system. And I, you know, I always very skeptical child. Like I spotted the hypocrisy everywhere I saw it. And I, I was annoying. You know, I was that child who kept asking the parents difficult questions. Mm-hmm. So why is that happening? Why is it like that? Why? Why did the Berlin Wall exist was one of my best questions ever when it was coming down on the TV. I demanded to know the full history of the Berlin Wall. My mother had to make up half of it on the spot. And um, that was the kind of stuff I did. So, no, it was very much recognising a system. And when I got involved with the laundries, first it was with the laundries, it was it's because they all lived, like I, as far as I could see, lots of survivors lived in Mayfield. And they lived in situations that weren't right and then we were talking about it you know the MacLeese report was happening and we were talking about how we're going to make this right and when the MacLeese report came out I remember getting the paper and reading it and just realizing it was a whitewash because all of us know if somebody was taken to a laundry they weren't seen again so this idea that Women did on average a year and a half. I think that was what the MacLeese report said. Mm. That, that's not true. Most of them died in there, you know, and um, that's borne out in the research I started doing. I found I found a lot of the dead and they, they did die in there. There's Good Shepherds alone have buried 300 people and girls and women in there and their time period here in Cork, about a hundred year period. There's a good shepherds up by us actually, yeah. up by the old woman's jail, you know, being Yeah, and that's the that, one. Yeah, yeah. yeah the, there was a burnt down there a few years ago mm. and asbestos and all these things, but years ago, like, you know, your, your mum would be threatening you, like, oh, yeah. if you don't yeah. behave now, you'll be going down to the good shepherds. Uh, but the good shepherds, was that for kids? Uh, so there it, was, a, was an industrial school that later, like they they called it an orphanage, but I don't call it an orphanage because an orphan is someone's so parents. Was there did. was there a t- an age uh, limit on the kids to stay there? Uh, because, like you said, there's three about three hundred people died in there. Like, did they actually did a lot of them grow into their uh, 
the 30s and 40s and 50s yeah, and stuff Yeah, so when, when the, the laundries were originally set up um, for fallen women in the 19th century and fallen meant like prostitutes and mm. stuff like that. And um, they came from an English system where they were trying... It was called rescue work. And the idea was teach them a skill, sewing or, you know, sewing or cleaning or something. So they'd have an alternative uh, job. Um, but they never really worked out like that, obviously. Mm. And it didn't work out like that here, especially um, when we got independence and we became more Catholic. Then they, expand, they expanded the definition of what a fallen woman was. So women who got pregnant outside of marriage, yes, absolutely. But it got really expanded. There's a case of a girl taken from Blackpool because she had a boyfriend and she was still a virgin, but she had a boyfriend and her three younger sisters as well, all put up to the Good Shepherds by the local parish priest. Their mother died and... The parish priest basically accused the father of not keeping him under control because the 16-year-old girl had a boyfriend and mm. they were put up to the laundry, um, all, all four of them. And um, so it started to get expanding into one of my favourites was love of dress. Um, there were girls in there for having a love of dress. So they like they like nice clothes and mm. to look nice. Um, vanity was considered a really bad trait in women and girls at the time, especially poor women and girls. And poor women and girls were easier targets because, you know, if your family had any power, they could stop this happening to you. Mm. The power was money back then. Yeah, yeah. But if they if they didn't, then that was that, you know, you were gone. And lots of people were, take, were taken by the Legion of Mary, the parish priest, uh, school teachers. Mm. Some girls would report that they were being molested and then they'd be taken as if that was the solution to the problem. We'll put mm. her in there. Yeah, yeah, she's not being molested anymore. No, she, no, she's literally a slave. So, oh. you know, or a slave laborer. She wasn't property, but she wasn't being paid either. Um, so there was all of all of these layers of what a fallen woman is. And eventually it got to the point where industrial school girls whose mothers had had them when they weren't married were then considered fallen as well. So you were fallen by birthright. Um, so mm. you went straight from the industrial school into the laundry and without now, ever seeing the outside world. Was, was there an age timeline and you say you went in there and you're six? Was there such a thing that when you get to a certain age, you're free or do, have they, they can um, hold on to you for as long as they actually want? If you were sentenced to an industrial school, you'd be sentenced till you were about 16 and you were kind of considered an adult in, in at least in the older times by the time you were 16, you know. So mm. usually you were sentenced till you were 16. But if no one was going to come looking for you and if you escaped and the guards brought you back anyway, there was no system. It was arbitrary detention. There was no court system that, that necessarily mm. sentenced you. There were a few women sentenced for things like concealment of birth which meant that they they had a baby in a shed kind of thing mm. um and they'd hit their pregnancy and maybe maybe the baby was was born not alive or different things like that so then it would extend sometimes to infanticide so infanticide is killing off your infant child so there were there were a handful of women sentenced on those terms but i know of one case of a woman who was sentenced on those terms and she did something like 60 years and died in there and is buried up there. I think like if you're in institutions and you're a baby or a child and then it comes to 16, 18, they say there's an element of Stockholm syndrome as well. Yeah. Like Absolutely. it's all you know, yeah. they're your carers, they're the yeah. only people that's going to provide for you. It's like prisoners in America have spent 14, 50 years, a lot of them when they get out, they can't settle into society because it's so different. A lot of them take their own lives. Mm. This is it. And I find that the industrial school girls were fairly, they, you know, there was fairly heavy handed training by the nuns in, in cleaning and cooking and stuff. So they will be working in hospitals as cleaners and stuff like that. And they, they'll keep a very clean home. But the boys were taught completely different stuff. So sadly, you'll get a lot of industrial school men who don't know how to look after themselves because the, the preparation of meals and things like that, the washing of your own clothes, mm. that wasn't part of their lives. So they're sent out without any um, domestic skill. And then the girls are sent out with only domestic skill. Um, mm. So it's very, very gendered, like feminism mm. again, like, you know, very, you know, very. You know, when you were getting involved in your activism around all this, um, can you talk about the dynamic between um, mothers and children that have come from there? Mm -hmm. Or would you rather not? 
No, I just think there's a. Um, it's I don't think people are aware of like. There's it's a not lot so of trauma. straightforward. Like. No, there's a lot of trauma. So like, you could have someone who was in the industrial school, who was also in a Magdalene laundry, who when you speak to her and you learn her story, you'll actually find out she was also born to a single mother. And you might, you might, this single mother, it's just a phrase. I don't, I don't yeah. mean anything by it. Yeah. Um, that, that when, when you begin to uncover her history, you'll find out her mother was 14. Mm. She's know? probably raped by the, the, the grandfather or, or, or. I mean, a relative or something like that. Exactly. And, and you know, you have to think of Ireland at that time. We well, say going back now to something like the 50s, the worst thing you could do was get pregnant mm-hmm. as a girl. So it's not like many girls were out enjoying an active sex life yeah. at all. Mm-hmm. They were, they, it was genuinely, it was worse than getting cancer. Like it was mm-hmm. worse than coming home and telling your parents you were dying. And I think that carried true right through the 80s and into the 90s because I, I saw it around Mayfield a lot and I know myself I thought it was the worst thing I could have done like I was mm. really afraid that fear is probably still instilled in a lot of women in their yeah. 40s and late 40s and 50s and 60s still there, I think like. so I think so and and like that's the thing um, so you will have you'll have these broken relationships where people will go and they'll try and reunite but they're <laughs> So the, the, the adult child is looking for a mother and the mother is somebody who's been broken by both losing their child, but also everything else the system has done to them. So they're not able mm. and the relationship isn't there. And I, I know of I know of some really uh, wonderful adoptees who are friends of mine who who respect their mothers and their birth mothers. But the best they can hope for is to be their friend. Mm. It's it's. It's broken. It's been lost. Is there mothers out there that, let's go with that example you said, mm. said there's a 14-year-old girl after being raped by a family member. She ends up in Besbra. The child is taken from her. 30 years later, right, she's 44 and the child is 30. Mm. The child is going looking for the mother. Mm. The mother has long since moved on remarried, the husband knows nothing about her, she's got no kids, and all that stuff has been compartmentalised and put behind her. Yeah. And now there's this 30 year old looking for her. She has the right not to be found. I think so. And I think, look, it's a very controversial mm. issue and you're probably going to get comments now. <laughs> like, but um, yeah. we are one of the only groups that set up to speak for mothers and a lot of them didn't consent to be mothers. So... Asking them for a relationship when they didn't consent to sex, to pregnancy or motherhood is really asking them to face the worst trauma in their life yeah. in, a, in an, an unsafe and uncontrolled environment. I think it, if someone wants to go into a psychotherapist's office and do mm. it professionally, I think it's a great thing to do. Yeah. And the healing is there. And your journey shows that some people can come through the worst hell mm-hmm. and out the other side. Mm. And, you know, but... Doing it on Facebook through search angels and things like that, I think is really dangerous. And um, I don't think it's gone well for people um, in, in, from, from the cases I know anecdotally. Um, also, then you, you sometimes have mothers who want to reestablish that relationship. But the person who they gave birth to is a different person. They were raised by a different family. They mm. have a different life. And... Yeah. They don't know you. We dropping mm-hmm. a, a time bomb up on top of that person's laps and it, they mightn't be able for that grief, the trauma of, of realising where they actually came from and the, the trauma that their biological parent went through, you mm-hmm. know, inside in these homes and giving birth to them and whatever else led up to that woman getting pregnant or whatever. And imagine having a normal life and never having much trauma, you know, knowing that yeah. you're adopted and then having to go through that might be very difficult. Yeah, no, um, and I, I would say I agree with every adoptee and, and every person I know who's had an early life separation that that's a trauma in and of itself. Mm. But they're different traumas. You know, the trauma that the mother has is based in memory and psychology and the trauma that the babe, the, the no adult baby has is based in the body. Um, so I think, I don't know enough about it because I'm not a psychologist, but there's obviously problems there and... 
Um, social workers have a method that they use now that seems to have begun to work for at least some people. And you begin with a letter. Yeah. So, you know, you write your mom a letter or she writes you a letter um, and, and you take it from there. And there might be letters exchanged over the course of two years before you ever meet. Do you know if you were born in Bespra mm. and you don't know who your parents are? Yeah. Can you go and find them now? Um, no, um, the short answer is no. I mean, the government is moving legislation called the Adoption Information and Tracing Bill, where the intention is to make that information available. And um, it's your birth cert, but it's also your early life um, mm. information. So if there's something on the file about who your father is, you will have a right to that as well. Um, so they they will have a right to the paperwork. Mm. Um, but the problem is, is the paperwork is is not always reflective of the true story. Um, mm. And it, it's often reflective of what the woman wanted to say, but also the nun's opinion. So, yeah. like, the nun will just write down what she thinks happened. Yeah. It doesn't mean it necessarily yeah. happened. And have you got two sides there then where certain people affected want the records to be opened and certain people want it to stay, remain sealed? I think um, there are mothers, there are some mothers who are worried, but um, at least in our group where there were some mothers who were worried, a conclusion was came to that they could have the information, but they couldn't have a relationship. So you can, you know, there's a, the mothers who are sympathetic to the idea that someone needs to know who they are. But they were also very frightened about the idea of them expecting to be their mother mm. or have an open relationship with them. And often it is something like a husband who doesn't know or children who don't know, mm. you know, other children who don't know. And that's hard too for the adopted person because they have siblings out there. I know, it's, you know, it's just yeah. so much trauma. There is so much I, I, trauma. Are we, like, are we as a, as a, um, a country... Is this the limit of the stuff as the the, the, the the shit, right? All these homes and stuff like that. Is this the limit or is there more that hasn't been spoken about yet? Is like, I th- are I think we at, at the top of it? I think there's a lot more. Yeah. I think, I think, um, Catherine's podcast with G was brilliant. She obviously yeah. got her, um, feeling really comfortable. So yeah. good for you. I hope you feel you comfortable know. now. I do. Um, I'm an anxious person anyway. I overthink yeah. everything, but I do feel comfortable. Um, but they like, I, I'm oh, friends with Catherine nearly yeah. two years now, yeah. and we're really good friends. We speak on the phone a lot, and uh, she'll tell me something brand new mm. every time we talk. And I'll be like, what? That happened? Like, for example, uh, the time she told me that if you were caught looking at yourself, your reflection in a door or a mirror, you know, you'd be polishing something, yeah. they make you do the cleaning. So you're polishing yeah. away and you cast sight of your reflection as I am in the TV over here. And they might notice you fix your hair, you got to stop for it. Mm. You got to stop for looking at yourself, you know. Do you know what um, I think? We're, do you know the direct provisions at the moment? Mm. I think that's going to come out down the line. The trauma people are experiencing there. Yeah. Do you know Because there's women down there. They're involved in sex work because they have no other choice because they're getting 19 euros a week. Mm-hmm. There's families living in rooms for nine and 10 years. Mm-hmm. There's violence goes on. The food is terrible. You know, there's so much trauma being confined in. And they don't want hunger strike just for the crack. Like, no, no. Is this where all the refugees are? Yeah. Above they're them? waiting the refugee status. So yeah. they're asylum seekers. So while they're waiting for their application, they're stored in what's like a, a hotel. They're allowed out during the day mm-hmm. to get 19 euros a week. And a lot of these people know that are here, a lot of them will face a lot of difficulties where they came from. And they be coming from areas where ISIS was chopping people's and, heads off, and, stuff and, like and, that. Like. Uh, and is there any system, is there anything up there then, like to, to help these people deal with the trauma? Or any psychologist or, or psychotherapists in, in these places, like to help these people? For following the direct provision Twitter accounts, I don't think there's anything Nothing really. Anymore. And, um, <laughs> They also spend I'm, I'm a very long yeah. period of time in these places. Yeah, so like yeah. I've seen cases where somebody was born in Ireland and she was at a protest holding a sign in her school uniform age 12. Just mm. 12 years. Mm. Indirect provision. That was her. That's her family home. So yeah. that's her childhood. You know. This, this, that is, this is not what's going to move down the line. Yeah. Like, is there yeah. many people inside in these communities then? There's loads. And uh, do you know what's the, what's the sickening thing about it? 
to know where they're housed. They're private enterprises. So let's say you own the facility, you're getting millions upon millions. You're making millions off their misery, basically. Uh-huh. And then the catering companies are making millions. There's a whole business in it. So then they're lobbying to perpetuate, to keep it going. You it's know like I mean? the prisons in America. Yeah, it's, it's, it's like that. It's, it's privatised, like, and Everything, then it's yeah. heavily incentivised then by government, you yeah. know. Or take these in, we give you this contract, it'll work so many millions every year. So then your business runs on the fact that we need people to stay More here. People, yeah. So, yeah. like, it's just a very fucked up system, but that's what's going to come out down the line. That'll be the next kind of scandal. And your profit margin is where you can save money on these people's qualities of life. So... The food, you've seen the images of the food, yeah. no doubt. So there's people tweet some of the meals they get. And I mean, you wouldn't give it to the dog, like. The last one wouldn't. I seen was two slices of white bread with a slice of tomato in the middle of it. Mm. Oh, yeah. Yeah, mm. that was the lunch. And I saw it was a pregnant woman as well posted it. But I wanted to get somebody on. Um, and when the direct provision um, activist groups advised me against it because they could be targeted for hate. Yeah. Because they get a lot of hate. Maybe somebody who's been granted status or mm. who, who I, feels safe. But, I don't yeah. know, but yeah, yeah, it's a, it's, a it's, a, it's really hard one. But they're they are ending direct provision. There, there's a there's a schedule to bring it to an end. To like basically, this system has to go. Yeah, um, and slowly they're getting they're, they're being allowed to walk, although very restricted. And then there's sanctuary scholarships, and UL I believe started it, and UCC and stuff like that. So. It's just going to take a long time. But yeah. to bring it back to Bezbra before we wrapped up that part of it. Um, so there's people buried down there, babies yeah. buried down there. Yeah. And they want to develop it for social housing. Um, okay, so it's a, it's a, now it's about a 60 acre estate of mm. mostly fields with the institutional buildings in the middle. And but back in the day, it was even bigger. So some of that is already gone. And the location of the children's burial ground has not uh, had not been known for a long time um, because there was no markers. So if you go down to Besborough, um, to near where, what was called the maternity building, you can walk through these big black gates and there's this kind of a nice garden with a gravel walk in the middle. And when you get to the end of it, there's a 19th century castle folly, a fake, fake castle. And at the foot of the castle folly is the nun's graveyard and it's marked with black iron Celtic crosses, each of their names, individual graves and um, a statue of, it's called the risen Christ. So it's after he's come up the tomb and he's standing on top of the tomb and raising his hand to heaven. So they have all of that. And then just outside of that, there's a, a 1.3 acre field that has been identified as the children's burial ground for maps and there was a developer who bought that land and they actually wanted to build cheap apartments on it. So they weren't social housing, but they were like, you know, that kind of really high density apartments that people, the working poor rent, those mm. kind of apartments, but very little parking and, you know, that kind of thing. And yeah. really, really high density. And the development plan had always said, so the development plan is the city guide for what you build. It had always said that it would be sensitive development. So I was really surprised to see this monstrosity in my own personal opinion don't sue me mm. uh being dumped in there and um we we were already looking for the children's burial ground the commission of an investigation had failed to find it the nuns uh, claimed that they didn't know where the children were buried and claimed that those who were old enough to remember didn't remember any children dying even though there was quite a lot of reported deaths in certain sisters mm. time there so we went looking and I don't know, like you might have encountered this with your partners, like, but um, don't tell an Ari woman she can't do something. Um, yeah, and don't definitely. tell Captain Coffee O'Brien she can't do something. Yeah. So we started looking at Ordnance Survey Ireland maps and we found one that said children's burial ground, but it was is what is what's called a six inch map. So it's quite a small map and a lot of detail is squashed in on top. So, so you wouldn't necessarily get the right location. So we went looking for the 25 inch map and they're, they're the gold standard in mapping. And if two posh guys were going to sue each other about where the fence was or who owned that field, that would be the thing they'd use. They'd yeah. use a 25 inch map. So we were looking for that and I was sending emails to Ordnance Survey Ireland and ringing them. And one day they answered the phone and a guy said to me, um, we're looking, everyone's looking throughout the building, 
you've caused a ruckus or something like that. No, he wasn't giving out to me. He was just a bit exasperated. So I said, okay, fair enough. I'll leave you to it. And I told our pro bono legal team. And not long after that, the barrister got a call from somebody in Ordnance Survey Ireland who had something to show him. So he went in and one of the staff there had found um, the original 25-inch map, the hand-drawn one. And Children's Burial Ground was written on it with a big circle around it. And um, these guys were in the army, so they had a code for everything. So if they if there was an oak tree, you wrote oak. And if the tree was medium, you wrote M. So you'd, you'd O, brackets M. Um, and then a gravel walk would be G walk. Um, if a fence was there, you marked it down. If a fence had been there and it had been taken away, you made sure it was removed from the map. Really highly detailed mm. system of reporting. And it went through seven layers of checking. So your boss would catch out if you made a mistake, basically. Mm. Oh, yeah. And they used to dock them a day's pay if they got a mistake. So they took the mistakes really serious. Yeah. But guys who did this were, were super nerds. They loved it. You mm. know, they loved getting it right and accurate. So the person who drawn the big circle around it was because there was no fence. There was no nothing. Um, there was nothing to indicate how far out into that field the children were buried. But that is the information he had on the ground in January 1950 and he would have had to get the nun to sign off on that and a lot of people don't trust nuns I don't trust them either but I trust the Ordnance Survey mapper who made sure that the information he was regarding is accurate mm. and so she would have had to sign that it would have had to go in a, a big ledger as well so when the map evidence was explained to us by the guy in Ordnance Survey who really stood over it, we, we, we said, OK, you know, and, and we accepted it because it was the best evidence. It seemed to line up with some of the stories we had. Some women remembered men walk, walking in that direction with babies' bodies or, or shovels or things like that. Um, and there was no conceivable reason for him to write down children's burial ground right. if there wasn't a He's children's not, burial ground. From, from that, like. Yeah, yeah. But we had to defend that over three days to um, an oral hearing of on board Planola. And that mapping expert was on the stand for six hours. I, I've i seen murder trials um, in, in, on TV, you know, dramatised stuff mm. that were this, this over the top. And what like was the, the net result of it? So they lost, they lost their their case and um, we won and they can't build there. Congratulations. Um, thank you. Who would have been the defence? Who's defending? Who was the defend? Was it the city or was it the nuns? No, um, they hired, a, um, so they were a private company who bought the land off the nuns. So they hired um, some of the best, uh, well, some of the most expensive legal people in the city. Oh, they weren't belong to the, the church or anything like no, that? No, the church had sold it on. Now, oh, okay. whether okay. there was any connection there, I I'll thought, never know. I thought they just didn't want. They sold on that bit. Dug up. They sold on that bit. There was an, there's another bit that has a question mark on it. And it's the only part the nuns kept, and it's where they're buried. Now the nuns never buried any of the industrial school mother and baby home Magdalen laundry people in with their own. Mm. But there's a chance they're nearby. But that field is next to it anyway. So yeah. maybe some of the children who are in the big field are also in in the area near where the nuns are buried. But it's, as far as I'm concerned, it's all the one circle. There just happens to be a and fence through They're not allowed to develop that land now. They're not allowed to develop that land now. Um, they they have few options. Uh, the legal team explained they've, they've very few options and none of them would work out very well for them. So ideally, they'd redesign it. Or, um, I mean, we've asked this, the state to buy it, um, to at least buy the children's burial ground section, which is about 1.36 acres. And whether they buy it by consent that the landlord, the current landowner sells it to them or they have to CPO it, mm. whatever, you know. But I mean, it's like talking to a brick wall. There is no communication from those developers. Do you think the yeah. families, the victims involved would be happy for part of it to be developed if there was acknowledgement that there was babies there and there was remembrance put in. That's what they told me. Um, and they're women whose babies actually died there. But that seems fair enough, doesn't it? Yeah. They, the well, Do you mean, know what though, James? I suppose there's an, an ethical and moral kind of side of it as well for these developers to have, like, this is the burial ground of, of a lot of babies. You know, they were brought in 
Hvor du får grønstik uden en dæk op. Do you know who, exactly who still wants the, the build a lot mm. of apartments on the ground? Even, even to excavate into the ground and you're coming across all these small little... Yeah, um, but you know, if you... It well, just doesn't make sense. I mean, the majority of the infants, uh, the, of the estimated 800 and say around 850 plus stillborn infants the majority of them died before 1950 so you're you're talking about men um bones that have that are quite old mm. and then and, and again trigger warning to absolutely everybody and anyone who's lost a child or anything like that infant bones are poorly mineralized so they're not hard you know the way child's bones yeah. growing yeah, yeah the way adult's bones and the the, the, the skull is infused so That's it has right. to grow together so they actually decay at a much more rapid rate than adult bones now i don't i'm not saying they wouldn't find them if, if they went looking they would obviously find some evidence mm. um of infant remains but it's not going to be pristine preserved nice graves the field they buried them in was a pasture land where cows grazed yeah so you're talking cows are about a ton in weight yeah, walking yeah. over it so, so it's not and so straightforward yeah, like it's not so straightforward unfortunately and i wish it was but it isn't yeah. and um well look we send our regards yeah, and it all the victims involved mothers yeah. babies mm-hmm. children everybody that was involved and the survivors and the advocates that still campaign today yeah. as well fair play to everybody and um recently there was an announcement around the redress 800 million amongst 34 grand amongst, amongst 34,000 people which works out between 10 to 20,000 each which is not a lot of money but uh, maybe look that there'd be more news than that but I'm going to bring the story back to you okay before we wrap up <laughs> yeah so you were telling us before that you have an autoimmune condition which means you have chronic pain yeah do you want to um, tell us a little bit about that yeah so when I was doing my master's I was in a very small car accident and it really was tiny it shouldn't have been bad but it was a small accident or a small car small car accident in a small car oh. um, we good were, way to put it yeah, I like that yeah. we, we were re- we were rear-ended and I had my arm up on the door and my elbow was kind of pressed between the door and the bone itself and it's it's kind of it's called a golfer's elbow <laughs> and it's inflammation of the joint but a few months later, a good bit later, I got, uh, two things happened. I got a virus that was going around in the community and it led to nerve pain. And the other thing that was happening was I was having physiotherapy and the ultrasound machine was turned up quite high and I felt I got a kind of a shock off it. Mm. So I started getting nerve pain. And if you've ever had a toothache, mm. it's it's like having a toothache forever, you know, and um how do you it manage that? Up. Well, I, I didn't. I didn't, mm-hmm. you know, I didn't manage it. Um, yeah. Affect your mental health? Well, I went on the drug Lyrica, mm. which was for um, for nerve pain and things like that, nerve damage. And um, it did affect my mental health. And I think Lyrica had a part to play in it. I, mm. I, it wasn't right for me. But also, um, yeah, why didn't I heal? Why did my body not heal? Why do other people's bodies heal and mine didn't heal? So... Mm. That bothered me. Um, the nerve pain would drive you insane uh, out of any other pain. You know, I laugh in the face now of mm. muscular pain, like, ah, whatever, it's not nerve pain. Um, but the nerve pain would drive you mad. So I tried Lyrica. I had to get off it. I wasn't happy with how it was uh, affecting me. Um, and I also did go, I, I went into one of those counseling um, courses there. So they're like, if you're on medical card and you ask your GP for counselling, you get eight weeks. And you do, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so I went to that as well. And um, just began to explore things. But I, I, in the end, I found that meditation was my thing. And um, that even my way of thinking was a big part of, of why the pain was worse and why it would get worse. And it's stress exacerbated. And, mm. you know, if you don't look after yourself, that makes sense that uh, if you're overworking your body, that is going to hurt, you know. Um, but I used body scan meditation to really watch the nerve pain. And I started to notice there was gaps between the pain, which I never thought there was. Mm. So then I started to kind of go all oh, the gaps between the pain or the place I want to mm. live you know yeah. so I tried to lengthen the gaps and I tried to dial it down in the same way that I thought my brain had dialed it up so the nerve pain hurt and then you're looking at your arm you're like it hurts so much it hurts so much and and 
it sort of amplifies it and it makes it louder. And um, so I tried to do the same thing in reverse and um, it wasn't easy mm-hmm. and it took a long time. And some, day, some days I have nerve pain. Um, I don't really have it in my arm anymore, but I still get it in my hip and my leg um, and sometimes in my neck. But the fear of it being forever, I found, was a big part of it and fear in general. Mm. A big part of it, and yeah, I just I meditated, and um, how was it? How was it today, for example? My sciatica. So I, I I have sciatica, or it's what my physio calls sciatica. Anyway, my lower back hurts on the left side. Um, it's fine today. Um, if I spend a day with the women listening to trauma stories. I find I'm absolutely shattered that night. Mm. So I just do things like I make rules for myself, like no sad stories after 8 p.m. Mm. Yeah, it's a big one. No tonaries before six. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I wouldn't do this yeah. at like 11 o'clock at night and get into the bed because I'd just be lying there wired yeah. thinking. Do you know it. what's standing standing off for me is, is your body and your energy is healing and mm. sitting with the pain in a normal day and you're able when you're listening to a sad story, it, your energy can get sucked from you too. And it might take that bit of energy from you and the pain that's been suited by the extra energy that's been taken for you, mm. it might be, it might be bringing the pain up a little bit more, but the, you, you, you know what the key is. You know what the key is. Meditation is the key to every, is the key to surrender and acceptance. It is. And, and it's, it's about, like I had a friend who had tetanus. If anybody knows what tetanus is, it's a consistent ringing in the ear. doesn't stop. Right. And some people go mad over it, mm. literally. It's it's renowned in the construction industry because it can go hammering on the drills constant going, you know. I mm. gave it to myself from clenching my jaw too much. Yeah. And we used to be chatting about it and he was meditating on it and he, he just grew to accept that this is part of who he is today. Yeah. And it stopped completely. It's still there. Yeah. But it's just, it's just like, it's like your taste buds, your taste buds are there. It's yeah. the same thing. And he've, he've a great, great life. It, nothing has changed. His life is like it was before, but it's, it's, it's about, about, it's about that gaining that acceptance around it and, and, and surrendering into when it comes. It's like if you're having a bad day, mm. when I'm having a bad day. I use it yeah, uh, because I know that there's healing in it and I know that if you're having a bad day, sit into it, accept it and just feel whatever's going on for you. And it's the pain you you said well ago, oh, the pain, this thing is going to be here forever. A bad day could do the same things yeah. in your head. If you're having a bad day and you're feeling something in your body and you don't like mm. it, you know, your head will tell you, fucking hell, I'm going to have to, I, I was like yeah. this before, when is this never going to stop? But like I have this ingrained voice in my head as well that says tomorrow will be different. Yeah. I have that. I kept saying tomorrow will be different. It'll be fine. There's no two days to say. Mine is a Buddhist tale called This Too Shall Pass. Mm-hmm. So yeah. do you know that one? I do. Yeah. I know it well. Yeah. Um, it's just remembering that whatever it is, it'll pass. Yeah. And, and the Buddhists are really funny about it because they're like, even if you have it for the rest of your life, you'll die eventually and then it'll pass, you know. And, yeah. and I like that kind of humor. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. And pain is also a great way to, to become conscious without no judgment. So when yeah. you start judging your pain, you're in big trouble. Yeah. And, and you know, I had to go through all that. I, I hear a lot of people yeah. say they can't meditate. Yeah. And... You know, it's not like I was good at it at the start. But you get good at it, don't yeah. just like anything else. like driving. Yeah. You know, you kind of need a muscle memory for it. And then as well, you'll have a bad day where you're terrible at it. Same with driving. Yeah. yeah. You know, you just will. Like, like yeah. Like but you know what? It, 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 I learned this at the beginning of my own journey that there's, uh, we were saying you could have a bad meditation or whatever, but I learned that there isn't. There's probably no such thing as a bad meditation. What it is really is you judging the meditation. Yeah. Your head might be all over the place where it wasn't yesterday. Yeah. But what that does as well, it tells you what kind of state of being you're in that day, especially in the morning. And if it's constant, you know then that you're going to have a busy mind for that day. Yeah. And it's really time to really sit with it and just understand it. And that's how you, how I got to know myself, you know. Yeah. It took me a long time out there yeah. to have that understanding yeah. and... That acceptance. The other thing, uh, 
that I, I learned from my reading and reflecting and maybe a bit from counselling is um, as Irish people, we're, we kind of, you know, we make heroes out of people who suffer. So, mm. you know, especially women who mm. suffer and, you know, the Virgin Mary complex, like yeah. it's suffering is a, is a virtue. Um, and aren't you great now? You know, and that kind of crap that I had to get over, yeah. you know, and divorce my thinking from and just wake up from. And uh, another thing God as I thought meditation was focus. And then one day a Buddhist monk who was Western explained in the YouTube podcast that uh, Westerners think it's focus. It's not. It's stillness. It's being. Be still. Yeah. Mm. It's not concentrate. Because if I concentrate, I'm giving it everything. Yeah. Yeah. You know, that's that's not a good idea um, for meditation. Being, yeah. being with what is, being yeah. with whatever is going on for you at that present moment without any judgment and being compassionate to yourself. Mm. You know, if your mind goes off for a second or two back into something else in the past or in the future or something you may have to do later on in that evening, it's about surrendering straight into that and bringing it back into the moment, the breath, the body scan, yeah. doesn't matter what it is. Yeah. And just and just consistently doing that and you'll integrate that into your everyday life where where shit does come up for you, mm-hmm. that stillness will come because you're after building that awareness in meditation by consistently bringing it back with compassion. Yeah. And you have that compassion in it. No, it's built into you. So every time you go off, oh, I can't again bring it back. Go back into the breath and just be nice to yourself. Yeah. And whatever that ruminating negative critic was going on in your mind, and it may have left some form of negative feeling in your body, it's about just feeling it and it's gone in seconds. Sometimes it may take a minute, two minutes, and it's gone. And that's what meditation is about. It's about, it's about that release and, and learning about your body. And it works. Uh, and it does work. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Do you want to close the podcast for us by reading the quote on the wall? The Buddha was asked, what have you gained from meditation? He replied, nothing. However, the Buddha said, let me tell you what I have lost. Anger, anxiety, depression, insecurity, fear of old age and death. Thank you. You've been a great guest. Thank you. Thanks very much. See you right. next week, lads. Thanks, everyone. Head over to Hulu this March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the award-winning movie, Poor Things, starring Emma Stone, Mark Ruffalo, and Willem Dafoe. Check out the new documentary, Freaknik, The Wildest Party Never Told, about the iconic Atlanta street party. And don't miss FX's Shogun, a reimagining of the epic tale starring Anna Sawai. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu. Ruby Frankie was known by millions as a very tough mom. That's exactly the way she wanted it. The social media star amassed a huge following of supporters and detractors alike, preaching the values of strict discipline. But you'll learn in a new podcast available exclusively on Wondery Plus how the small empire built by this momfluencer crumbled the moment her 12-year-old son escaped their home and called 911. Wondery and Law and & Crime bring you the new podcast, The Rise and Fall of Ruby Frankie, which explores the allegations of starvation, torture, and emotional abuse leveled against Frankie and her business partner, Jody Hildebrandt. Learn about the family's path to stardom, the depravity investigators uncovered inside the home, and hear in-depth analysis of the ongoing criminal trial. Listen to The Rise and Fall of Ruby Frankie exclusively and ad-free on Wondery+. Plus. Join Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts.